Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we're currently in the book of Isaiah. And this morning we're going to take a couple of verses out of the larger section of Scripture that we'll look to cover tonight. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, <clears throat> there are men coming up the aisles at this moment with Bibles. And you just wave and get their attention, and they'll give you a Bible that's marked to our passage here this morning. And uh, you'll be able to hear the Word and then also read it as well. Please, if you don't own a Bible... Make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Two verses this morning, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that is Jesus. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for Lori today and the loss of her husband and her friend. And oh, what a wonderful man he was. I count myself so rich to have known him and how much more to be his wife and all that they knew together. And we pray that in the greatness of her need, even as we've sung this morning, how it is that you're greater than everything that we face and every need that we have, that you would overwhelm her and the children with yourself. You are the God of all comfort. You know how to speak to us exactly what we need to hear. You know how to touch our bodies and more than our bodies, our minds and our hearts and our very spirit with yourself to give us strength and to give us perspective and to give us comfort and to give us hope. And so, Lord, we pray, knowing that you're speaking, God, that you would speak to her and to them. Thank you for Rob's life. Thank you for the confidence that is ours, that he is in heaven at this time. Thank you for the Savior, Jesus, that made it all possible for him and for us. And Lord, we ask that you would also put your finishing touches this morning on the women's retreat. We ask that you would bless them and meet with them in the way that you do. We thank you for their love for you and their desire to draw closer to you in that environment. We pray that every single intention that you had for taking each one of them individually to that retreat, that it would be fully and wonderfully accomplished. And then we pray, Lord, that you would protect them and bring them home safely to each of their marriages and their homes, their place where they live and where they work and all of these wonderful hats and responsibilities that they have. Thank you, Lord, for these sisters. We ask that you bless them today. And we ask that you would meet with us as we study your word here this morning. These two precious verses, the volume of the book testifying of Jesus, and we pray that you would cause us to understand what these two verses speak of him as well. We pray for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit upon each of our lives to have a supernatural capacity to understand and to appreciate what you have done for us, Father, in him. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
The book of Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel. And it's called the fifth gospel because of the sheer amount of prophecy that it contains concerning Jesus. It was written about 740 years before Jesus was ever born. Prophecies declaring his deity. Prophecies declaring his virgin birth. Prophecies that uh, lay out in amazing detail so many of the specifics of both his life and of his ministry and his miracles. And prophecies not only concerning his first coming, but the prophecies contained in the book then speak of his second coming and reach even beyond that into the kingdom age and then beyond that into the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness will dwell. And the book of Isaiah is quoted some 85 times from 61 different verses and passages from Isaiah in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book. And in Isaiah chapter 12, I mean Isaiah chapter 52 beginning in verse 13 all the way through the final verse of chapter 3, we come to one of the most amazing prophetic descriptions of Jesus in all of the book of Isaiah. In fact, the most amazing, and not only in the book of Isaiah, but in the entirety of the Old Testament. It literally is the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. Again, this chapter is written 740 years before Jesus was born. And as you read the passage and what Isaiah writes these uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, you have this sense that he is standing right at the base of the cross and he is watching all the, uh, the events of the day in which Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world. But one of the amazing things to realize about this description of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and all of it is found in Isaiah chapter 53, is that Isaiah doesn't merely give us this visual of the scene, but his description of Jesus' crucifixion is also fulfilled with instruction, is filled with instruction as to why he was crucified, why he was going through what he was going through upon the cross. And Isaiah chapter 53 is kind of like taking a gospel and then adding the book of Romans to it and combining the two together. It hits us emotionally. It produces these very vivid pictures in our minds that touch our emotions. For instance, in chapter 52, verse 14, we're told of Jesus's, uh, punishment or the, the affliction that was meted upon him even before he went to the cross. We're told that just as many were ast- astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of man, that he was so badly beaten and so badly abused by mankind that it was from head to toe, not only his face, 
but his form as well, his body. If you had been watching Jesus teach just but a day before in one of the courtyards of the temple there in Jerusalem, and you had listened to him teach, and you thought, that face, I'll never forget that face of the man who spoke the beauty of that truth. And then the next day, as you see him hanging upon that cross, you would have never known it was the same man. He was unrecognizable as a human being and for who he was. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, we're told in this same vein of how all of this passage hits us so emotionally. We're told, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him, that is Jesus, before the Father, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that we should see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And to read all of this, just as a human being, but to read it as a Christian, as someone who knows him as our Savior and as our friend, the passage hits us deeply emotionally. But it also has just as great an impact upon our minds and upon our understanding. And it's intended to do so as it speaks of him as a sin offering. And it speaks concerning him related to substitutionary atonement and propitiation and justification. It's a magnificent study, this series of verses ending there at the end of chapter 53 and all of 52 and all the way through chapter 53. A magnificent study, not only in the how of salvation, but in the what of salvation, the why of salvation, of the salvation that's been provided to us in our Savior, in Jesus. Sometimes you'll hear very, very misguided souls declare that the Apostle Paul essentially hijacked Christianity from Christ himself. That the Apostle Paul took the simple teachings of Jesus about loving one another, and he's the one that took the teaching of Jesus and complicated it, making it about sin and repentance and forgiveness and salvation and everlasting life. And it was Paul that turned it from this emotional thing into doctrine and into theology. And the only person who could ever believe such folly Such foolishness is a person who is entirely ignorant of Isaiah chapter 53. Who would believe such a thing that Paul's doctrine was any such hijacking of Christianity when we see in the chapter that his doctrine is as old as Isaiah and indeed as old as the book of Genesis. And so it is this wonderful, wonderful examination, not only of the how of our salvation, but the what and the why. And this morning we want to explore this precious, really priceless revelation that is found in but verses 10 and 11 to discover what they teach us concerning our Savior and our friend Jesus. We're told in verse 10 that it pleased the Lord, that is, God the Father, to bruise him, that is Jesus. In other words, it was supremely the Father who bruised Jesus. 
It was supremely the Father who put him to grief. Jesus' death upon the cross occurred because it was the Father's plan. And there's this ongoing discussion throughout the centuries for whether it was the Jews or it was the Gentiles who were supremely uh, responsible for the abuse and the crucifixion of Jesus. Was it the Jews or was it the Romans? And so the discussion goes on. And the fact of the matter is that both were responsible And plainly, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' time, and Caiaphas the high priest in particular, bore the greater responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus concerning the two, because Jesus declared to Pilate on the morning of the cross, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. And therefore, the one who delivered me to you, that is Caiaphas the high priest, has the greater sin. But the question itself, and I think that any attempt to answer it focused solely upon whether it was the the Jews supremely or the Gentiles supremely, is born out of ignorance. It was the sins of each of us that then led the Father to bruise him and to put him to grief, to make him a sin offering. Jesus declared concerning himself, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins didn't occur because he woke up one morning and a series of events began to go sideways on him. The day ran amok and the crucifixion, his crucifixion on that morning was just kind of the regretful result of all of it. Jesus, his death for our sins was the part of a great divine plan. Peter, speaking to the great multitude on the day of Pentecost, preaching a sermon that would result in thousands of people being saved, he declared, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know him. And here it is being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Isaiah chap- I mean, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, speaks of Jesus as the Lamb slain, from the foundation of the world. He was slain before the creation of the heavens and the earth, before man was ever created. God's plan of salvation didn't come into being at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't something that God came up with at the moment when now having to deal with some unexpected event in that Garden of Eden. He's blindsided by Adam and Eve's sin. Hence, thus he sends this plan of salvation into human history like you would send an ambulance to dispatch it to the scene of some catastrophic accident. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin. 
And he provided for the forgiveness of that sin far in advance of their fall. In fact, far in advance of their very creation. What amazing love God has for us. God was not powerless or helpless to deliver his son from the cross and from the horror of that day. On the contrary, he allowed Jesus to be bruised and to be put to grief because this was the only way by which to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. The passage there in verse 10 says, It pleased the Father to bruise him. And you look at that word pleased and it's startling when we understand what the verse is saying and what it's speaking about. How could the mutilation of Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion, and then the crucifixion on top of all of it. How could this ever please the Father? And it doesn't mean that when Jesus, when the Father watched this abuse of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion and ultimately his crucifixion, that he found any pleasure in Jesus' crucifixion. It speaks surely to the greatness of God's love for man, And the joy that would come to both Father and the Son over the great multitude who would accept the offer of salvation and be saved from the eternal judgment that our sin deserves and then saved into a relationship with God for which we are eternally grateful and for which we will offer God our praise and our worship forever and ever. Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary was an astonishing expression of agape love, a love that does what is best for the other person and does what is best for the other person, whatever the sacrifice to itself. And both Father and Son demonstrated that love for us as sinners at Calvary. Calvary is the great demonstration of other-centered love in human history. And both the Father and the Son were pleased with Calvary because it provided sinful man with salvation from the penalty and the power of sin. One day from the very presence of sin. Rob Bonning understands that today experientially and a, and providing these things to us, the things that could not be provided in any other way, that they could only come by making Jesus an offering for our sin. But why would God the Father, and why would Jesus do it? Well, they did it because of their love for us. But beyond that, is there another reason? Why was Jesus' death upon the cross to provide us with the forgiveness of sins necessary? And I want you to notice a key word there in verse 11 for our attention this morning. And it is that word satisfied. Because it's very, very significant in the answering of this question. The why of Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. We know that Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection satisfies every true and deep need And every sinner and every human being and every Christian's life providing us with forgiveness of sins and 
It provides us his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection with a meaning and purpose in life now. It provides us with the confidence of heaven once this life is over. But his death upon the cross not only satisfies the needs of mankind, but his death upon the cross also satisfies God. He satisfies something in the Father. And it's interesting to think about it in those terms. That Jesus' death upon the cross not only provided satisfaction for us, but in some way provided a satisfaction for the Father. For some reason, Jesus is the Savior who satisfies the Father. You see, God faced a very, very significant problem, a great dilemma in his desire to save people like you and me, to save sinners. It's more complicated than we oftentimes realize. And the complications are spelled out for us in Isaiah chapter 53 and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The problem that God faced in his desire to forgive sinners is that the righteousness, that is, the rightness or the right-onness that's required for anyone to be able to one day enter into heaven is perfection. I love the quote of an old Puritan. He put it this way, The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. Now, take an hour to unpack all of that, but it is significant in what it says, and it encapsulates the problem that God faced in providing forgiveness to sinful man. I'll read it to you again because your head is spinning. The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. Now allow me to translate it for you. In other words, God cannot lower the standard of perfection or else he would not be a righteous God. And the problem, God declares that each of us is guilty of sin. Each of us has been less than perfect in the course of our lives. And each of us has broken God's laws. And thus, we have been in and of ourselves disqualified from ever getting into heaven based upon our own works or our own human effort or our own merit. The Bible teaches that there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible declares further in the same chapter, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned. And there's a consequence to that sin, the verse goes on to say, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin has disqualified us from ever being able to enter into heaven on our own merits and on the basis of our own works. And the Bible teaches that there's a penalty that must be paid for our sin, that the wages of sin is death. It's important for us to understand in the insanity of the world and the thinking of man that is all around us on a daily basis endeavoring to indoctrinate every one of us and indeed the whole world at once. This universe is not man's universe. It's God's universe. 
This world is not man's world. This world belongs to God on the basis of uh, creation and Him being the Creator. And it belongs to God whether man realizes it or not. It's like having some kind of a hobo coming in while someone who owns a mansion that's worth $25 million breaking down the front door in the absence of the owner and then entering into the house and setting up camp and somehow believing that by virtue of occupying the house that it now somehow belongs to them. And man and all of his rebellion against God and all of his sin and all of his folly and all of his pride and his arrogance is filled with the idea that somehow because we inhabit this world that it is somehow ours, it belongs to us. And it's utter nonsense. It's foolishness. And man ignores this great truth today. The world belongs to God. And just as there are penalties for breaking the law in a city or in a state or in a nation, there is a penalty in the universe for breaking God's law. And just as those who break man's laws are punished for their crimes, and rightly so, so too there is a punishment for those who break God's laws. Because God is perfectly just and holy, every violation of His law, every sin must be punished. And if He did not punish those who break His laws, if He just casually overlooked sin and tolerated sin and accepted sin, then He couldn't be holy and He couldn't be just. And I'll tell you, you wouldn't want to live in a city or a nation that number one, did not have laws, and number two, did not enforce those laws. And so it is with the universe. God has laws, and He enforces them. And He wouldn't be just, and He wouldn't be holy, and He wouldn't even be loving if He didn't do so. And people complain about the fact that God has these laws, and that He... um, punishes the violation of those laws, that there's consequences to that, not realizing that we wouldn't have a nation, we wouldn't have a world, there wouldn't be law and order, the world would turn into a jungle, it would turn into might makes right, it would be a savage place to live if there were not laws and the enforcement of laws. We recognize it on the human level, and then to proud man it's an affront when the same thing is true of God. Sin has ruined the world, and God will not allow it to ruin heaven. And the solution to this dilemma of how to save sinful man, and there's only one solution, and God was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross of Calvary, for it is there that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness, his right onness, his perfection, to be put to our account, giving us a righteousness that heaven requires. And yet at the same time, it does not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of our sin. No one can look at Jesus hanging upon that cross and ever declare that God has a casual attitude concerning sin and the seriousness of sin. 
And it is only by providing mankind with salvation through Jesus' death upon the cross that allows God in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 verse 26 to remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man. And it is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly holy God to save ungodly sinners and still remain just in doing so. And the writer of the book of Hebrews declares Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. And therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he, speaking of Jesus, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. And then here it is, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the word propitiation is a theological term, but it is a term that every Christian ought to know the meaning of, and every non-Christian ought to know the meaning of. The word propitiation carries the idea of a satisfying payment. That is the word satisfy again that we see here in chapter 53 in verse 11. The word propitiation was used in ancient times to refer to an act of appeasing another man's or another person's anger by the offering of a gift or a sacrifice. And the word was then ascribed to God as it relates to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins because it is only His sacrifice that makes the full and satisfying payment that is required for the forgiveness of our sins. Again, it is only His sacrifice that makes it consistent for God to pardon sinful man. And it is only Jesus' sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God toward our sin. And God's wrath toward our sin is real. Again, he wouldn't be a holy God, and he wouldn't be a righteous God if he was indifferent to sin. And it's important for you to realize if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, until you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, God's wrath hangs over your life. And that wrath and that anger related to sin in his neighborhood, in his universe, in his world, is a righteous anger. Paul writes of it in Romans chapter 5. He said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and much more than having been justified by his blood. Here it is. We have been saved from wrath through him. God loves you. And he loves you with a love that a hundred thousand of the most eloquent men and women in human history couldn't even begin to communicate to you and scratch the surface with regards to the greatness of his love for you individually and for you personally. And yet he cannot ignore your sin. You must receive his forgiveness. And you must receive it his way, in a way that satisfies his righteous anger towards sin. And in that way, that way is through faith in Jesus. 
And it is the failure on the part of our culture to view sin as something serious that keeps people from becoming serious about securing God's forgiveness for their sin. Why are the churches of the United States and the world, we'll speak specifically of the United States, not full of people longing for the forgiveness of their sins, except that they have been indoctrinated now that sin is meaningless, that sin is unimportant, and in many cases that sin does not exist at all. And there's a great deception concerning sin that's going on all around us in the nation in which we live. And this lack of seriousness concerning sin begins with people and the nation then giving new names to sin. Adultery now becomes an affair. Homosexuality becomes the gay lifestyle. Fornication now becomes living together. Abortion now is just a women's right to choose and so forth. The name game, the wordsmiths begin to go to work just as the politicians do on so much. The greatest minds are put together now to remove the sting of sin, to rephrase sin, to take away the shame of sin, to take away the conviction of sin. And the terrible price that is paid as a result is people less and less are conscious of their sinfulness and the need of forgiveness. And then what a nation does after it redefines sin is it then takes the next step, even as our nation has, and that it passes legislation now to protect sinful behavior and to then as a result remove any stigma associated with sin. And God's standard of right and wrong, His definition of sin, as a result, is to made is made to look foolish and old fashioned and out of touch in the modern world. And then pretty soon we begin to think that because so many people share our new definitions of what sin is and what it isn't. And so many people have bought in to the new definitions of right and wrong that somehow it doesn't matter what God thinks of sin any longer. But it does matter. And in fact, what God thinks about sin and forgiveness and salvation is all that matters. Sin does matter. Not in the insane asylum that is the world today, but in the only sane place in the world, in the universe, and that is heaven itself. Forgiveness is necessary, and forgiveness is only found in Jesus, and that's God's truth on the subject. And then the question becomes, what will you do with that? What will you do with God's revelation? of the seriousness of sin and the need for it to be forgiven and to be washed away and to be cleansed in order to ready us for the heaven that he wants to bring us into. The question for you this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, is not what does the world think about all of these things. 
Not what does your husband or your wife think about these things, or your father or your mother or your children or your friends, or even the so-called great minds that fill the upper levels of education in the United States of America. None of that matters, not for you. The great question is, what will you do with God's offer and with his provision? Because the Bible teaches, and I don't say this as a means of putting some kind of fear, all right, he's going to help Hold me over hell now. Which wouldn't do anybody any harm, by the way. I say it because it's true. That one day each and every one of us will stand individually. Not as a nation. Not as a church. Not as a family. Not as a clan. Not as a neighborhood. Not as a city. But each of us is going to stand individually before God. And give an answer for what we did for the salvation that he provided for us in order to provide us with a righteousness that would be acceptable for heaven. What will you do personally with God's offer? Not what everyone else does. That's not what is supremely important to you. You'll be held account for your decision. I want you to notice further in verse 11 that Jesus died on that cross to justify many. Jesus died on the cross in order to provide us, mankind, with justification. Well, there's another theological term that's important for us to understand. What does justification mean? What does that mean to justify? And to be justified means to be declared righteous by God because of Christ's work upon the cross. When a person is justified, when a person puts their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, God declares us to be justified. That is, just as if we had never sinned. That's how God sees us. And I mentioned earlier, after we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we're not only forgiven of our sins, praise the Lord, that would be enough. But beyond that miracle of forgiveness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is then put to our account. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For he, that is the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is in Jesus, by virtue of our faith. Paul wrote to the Romans, and therefore it is accounted to him, that is Abraham, for righteousness. Now it was written, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us that it shall be imputed to us who believe in Jesus, who believe in him, that is the Father, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, and who has delivered us up because of our offenses, and raised us up because of our justification. In other words, when God looks at us now and forever as Christians, He never again sees our sin. He never sees our failure. 
He never sees a single mark of the unrighteousness of our former life before we became Christians. He only sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees us justified, just as if we had never sinned. Well, since Jesus died on that cross to justify many, why not you? Why don't you become a part of that many? And how does it happen? He tells us right there in verse 11. By his knowledge. In other words, by the knowledge of Jesus it occurs. And that knowledge speaks of not a head knowledge. But it speaks of a personal knowledge. It speaks of an experiential knowledge. It is by coming to know Jesus personally and experientially through faith and trusting in him. That's what the word means. Jesus put it this way in his offer to all of mankind. He said, for God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in him or trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And when a person comes to God and says, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I have been less than perfect all of my life. And I understand now that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. And that's not an offense to me. That's not an affront to me. It blesses my heart to know that you as God are so holy and so pure that but one sin in my life could separate me from you. But I also recognize from the offer that Jesus makes God that you loved me so much even in my sinful condition that you sent your son to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sin and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day and that he is the savior and that he and that is the salvation that pleases you and that it satisfies you and so I put my faith in him I turn from my old ways I give you my life and I give you my life to use for the rest of this life and all of the life to come. And when a person says something like that to God and means it in their heart, the greatest miracle that occurs in all of the world happens when God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into your life and now you're born again by the Holy Spirit. And it's a gift. It happens in an instant. You receive the forgiveness of sins. The righteousness of Jesus is put to your account. You begin a relationship with God. A new nature is imparted to you that comes from the Holy Spirit that has a love for God and a love for holiness and a love for righteousness that is even greater than our love for sin and our love for ourself. He gives us the power then to live the life that it's described in this book, a life that looks like Christ, and then he gives us the confidence of heaven after all of this is over. And all of this is found in Jesus alone. Jesus who alone is able to satisfy not only the needs of sinful man, but also the righteous requirements of God the Father. 
And this is God's plan. And this is God's offer to you. And I implore you to receive it. You, personally and individually. What will you do with his offer? And everyone will do something with his offer. The only reason that you're in a church this morning is because you're not satisfied with the life that you've been living as a non-Christian. You're on a search. Jesus will satisfy every meaningful thirst in your life. And he'll do it this morning as you just put your trust and you put your faith in him. Receive his gift this morning, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of salvation today. Sometimes you look at a passage like this. In Isaiah chapter 53, as I said, it's so full of emotion. We'll study it in its entirety this evening. And we have a need to worship God with our hearts and with our emotion. We're emotional creatures and beings. And God made us that way. But we also have a mind. And we're intended to worship God with our mind. And what we understand of God, the beauty, even the complexity and the reasons behind his salvation. When we understand the thinking that is behind the salvation and we just scratch the very surface of the revelation that's given to us in the Bible. There's a whole world behind Jesus' salvation that we'll only understand one day when we're in heaven. But to understand it with our mind, it then translates into our heart and that understanding and our heart then releases emotionally to give him praise and to give him thanks and worship for it. Do you think he just gave us our minds in order to pass algebra 2 and trigonometry and calculus so that we could understand what's written on Wikipedia concerning whatever subject we would need to try and understand even on a surface level? Is that... Is that the highest use of a mind? Is that why God gave us a mind? To be spent on the mountains of trivial pursuit that are piled up miles high all around us? Not so that our minds, not just our hearts, but our minds would explore the glory and the majesty and the beauty of the salvation that is ours in Christ. What a wonderful Savior and what a wonderful, wise and loving Father is behind our salvation. We give Him praise and we give Him thanks that He was able to find a way to save people like you and me and yet remain just and holy in doing so. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Thank you, Father, for our Savior. And thank you for the greatness of both his and your love for us. That you would be willing from the foundation of the earth to make such a sacrifice so that people like us could come to have a personal relationship with you the very relationship that we were created for. Thank you for all of the love and the wisdom that is bound up in your offer, Father. And thank you for the prompting of your Holy Spirit that works so wonderfully day in and day out to pull us out of all manner of sin and distraction and to one day bring us, Lord, to a place like this today where we hear the offer of your salvation and to realize you and this is what we've been looking for all of our life and then to obey you and surrender to you and then enter into a life that was unimaginable to us at one time. And those of us who know you and love you, those of us who have put our faith in your Son, we praise you, Lord, for your offer of salvation and the work of your Holy Spirit to bring us to the place of experiencing that miracle within our lives. And we pray, Lord, for each man and woman. They all have their story, Lord. You have created with them. You have been with them. You have seen every thought that they've ever thought, heard every word they've ever spoken, seen everything that they've done, Lord, each one that doesn't know you yet in this room. We pray that by your Holy Spirit personally right now in their life that you would help them to hear your voice of concern concerning their sin and the need for forgiveness and that they would receive your salvation and your pardon as they would receive your Savior today. We ask, Lord, for that miracle in their lives this morning. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name.